Sports. From Diversion Podcast in association with iHeartRadio, this is the GOAT, Tom Brady. Episode 3, Tom Brady's Draft Day Blues. This is the story of Tom Brady, the greatest of all time. I'm Gary Myers, author of the New York Times bestseller, Brady vs. Manning. And thanks so much for listening to Episode 3 of The GOAT, Tom Brady. How much disrespect can one person take? Tom Brady became mentally tough at Michigan when he felt slighted from the day he arrived on campus in the summer of 1995 to the final game of his college career on New Year's Day 2000. It was in that Orange Bowl game when he was actually benched for a series in an overtime victory against Alabama when he was in the midst of throwing for 369 yards and four touchdowns. Although he enjoyed Michigan, the five years seemed like 20 in football years. By comparison, his two days of suffering and waiting to hear his name called on draft weekend in 2000 seemed like an eternity. Finally, in the sixth round, with pick number 199, the New England Patriots chose him. Brady has become synonymous with the number 199. He did an interview with Steve Sable for NFL Films in May of 2002, a few months after he won his first Super Bowl. Sable read the scouting report on him leading up to the 2000 draft. Here's what it said. Poor build, skinny, lacks great physical stature and strength, lacks mobility and ability to avoid the rush, lacks a really strong arm, can't drive the ball downfield, does not throw a really tight spiral. System-type player who can get exposed if forced to ad-lib and gets knocked down easily. As Sable was reading this, Brady was grinning. And his response? That sounds like Joe Montana. It was a little cocky of Brady to compare himself to Montana two decades ago, but it turned out he wasn't wrong. If two players are almost identical in their achievements, ability, playing style, and demeanor, it's Tom Brady and Joe Cool. One other thing, they were both an afterthought in the NFL draft. Brady's draft experience made his Michigan days seem as carefree as a spring day on campus hanging out with a pretty girl in a blanket and a bottle of wine. Listen, if Bill Belichick and Patriots Director of Player Personnel Scott Pioli thought Brady was going to develop into the greatest quarterback of all time, they certainly would not have waited until the sixth round to take him and actually drafted six players ahead of him. All credit to Belichick for being the one to draft him and develop him and install the perfect system to help him win six Super Bowls. But nobody comes off as a genius here when the GOAT is passed over 198 times. The Patriots saved him from a life as an insurance salesman. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But with ticks off Pioli, who joined Belichick exiting the Jets three months before they drafted Brady, how so many people have abused the privilege of revisionist history and claim they were part of Team Brady all along. In this clip, although Pioli doesn't name Michigan coach Lloyd Carr, that's clearly who he's referring to when he talks about Michigan. It's amazing the number of stories that I hear now of 
how many people loved Tommy coming out, but for whatever reason, they weren't in a position to take him. And, you know, hearing some of the people that were with him at Michigan and how highly they thought of them and without naming names, uh, because I don't want to do that specifically to one person. So I guess revisionist history is amazing because there's a lot of people that have inserted themselves into Tommy's football life story in order to give themselves credibility. Question. You know the story how the watch pot never boils? It's true, at least for me. The water will eventually boil, but never when I am standing over and watching it, and never when my wife is pressuring me to finish cooking whatever she has put me in charge of for dinner. Guaranteed it will boil, honey. Relax. How about staring at the phone waiting for an important call? We've all been there. It's agonizing, depressing, even humiliating. Ring already, please. Remember in the final episode of Friends how Ross was waiting for Rachel, hoping she didn't get on the plane to Paris? Instead, she showed up at the front door. Even better. Okay, so what's the point? Boiling water, telephones. You can't force the issue. On draft weekend in 2000, Tom Brady spent nearly two full days waiting for the phone to ring at his parents' home in San Mateo, California. It was almost as if his cell phone was playing with him, laughing at him. Not yet, Brady. You ran a 5-2-8 for the 40 at the Combine. Still the slowest time for a quarterback. You think you're going in the third round when you can't outrun a 250-pound pass rusher? Ha! Your coach never seemed to buy into that you were the guy. Wait your turn, kid. The more desperate Brady became for the phone to ring, the more rounds went by without it making a peep. All he needed was for one team to love him. Cleveland, Baltimore, Atlanta, either team from New York, New Orleans, his hometown 49ers, somebody, anybody. You can even call Collect. Please listen again to something Brady told me when I was interviewing him for my Brady vs. Manning book. I used a full clip in our first episode. Here's just a piece of it, but it's really important. I asked him about his long wait. There's still a reason why I was, you know, drafted that late. I'm still not the biggest guy. I'm not the strongest guy. I don't run the best. I don't throw the ball the hardest. I had a luxury of being under the radar. He said that to me after he had already won multiple Super Bowls and was a lot more forgiving than he was on the weekend of April 15th and 16th in 2000. He was distraught until Bill Belichick finally called, and despite his incredible accomplishments, he's carried that 500-pound chip on his shoulder to this day. When you think of it, maybe that's why he runs so slow. I attended that 2000 draft in New York, and they were about to turn out the lights at the theater at Madison Square Garden when Brady's name was finally called. The only place to cause the stir was at Brady's house in San Mateo. Tom Brady is the greatest draft oversight in NFL history. Sure, there have been other blunders. Four-time Super Bowl champion and three-time Super Bowl MVP, Joe Montana was taken in the third round. The same round as Russell Wilson, who beat Peyton Manning in the Super Bowl and was one play away from beating Brady in the Super Bowl the next year. Super Bowl champion Drew Brees, the NFL's all-time leader in passing yards and touchdown passes, was taken in the second round. All-time great Johnny Unitas was a ninth-round pick and cut by the Steelers before the regular season and sat out the year before signing as a free agent with the Baltimore Colts. Dan Marino, the first quarterback to throw for 5,000 yards in a single season, was a sixth quarterback taken in 1983. 
but at least he still went in the first round. And Kurt Warner, a Super Bowl MVP, was stocking grocery shelves in Iowa after he failed a free agent tryout with the Green Bay Packers. All of these quarterbacks are either in the Hall of Fame or will be in the Hall of Fame. Again, Brady was taken in the sixth round. He was the seventh quarterback selected. The six who went ahead of him, Chad Pennington, Gio Carmazzi, Chris Redman, T. Martin, Mark Bolger, and Spurgeon Wynn. Pennington was the only one of them drafted in the first round. He had 44 regular season victories in his 11-year career. Brady has won an NFL record 30 playoff games. Wynn threw for 585 yards in his career. Brady threw for 505 yards in a Super Bowl. You get the point. Just as incredible as Brady being the seventh quarterback taken is he was the seventh player Bill Belichick drafted for the Patriots in 2000. The six who went ahead of him? Adrian Clem, J.R. Redman, Greg Robinson Randall, Dave Sachelski, Jeff Marriott, and Antoine Harris. Brady wasn't even the first player the Patriots picked in the sixth round. That honor went to Harris. Let's just say that none of the six will ever be selected for the Patriots Hall of Fame. We'll be back with more of the GOAT, Tom Brady, right after this. NFL teams each spend millions of dollars annually scouting college players. Even after having scouts file extensive reports after canvassing the country during the college football season, watching games, practices, and enough tape to make their eyes pop out, they still have another opportunity to evaluate players at the Combine in Indianapolis at the end of February. And even with all that, if Patriots quarterback coach Dick Rabine did not speak up for Brady, he probably would not have been drafted by New England. As it was, he was taken with a compensatory pick at the end of the sixth round, granted to the Patriots and other teams who had lost free agents. Here's Patriots owner Robert Kraft on how all the draft experts in NFL front offices make this much more complicated than it has to be. I was thinking back of my time in the NFL. This was six years and listening to Barcells and the personnel people and how drafting players and everything, it's like nuclear science work and how complicated and I couldn't understand certain things. And then I see that we had all these teams spending millions of dollars on this process. And here they let a player that we see now might have, I mean, I think is the greatest at the position in a hundred year history. And they all passed on him. And I remember in the fourth round, Dick Rabon spoke up and, you know, we had three quarterbacks and Bill said that. And then the fifth round and then the sixth round, it was a comp pick. So it was, it's really like it was the bottom comp mm -hmm. pick, the sixth round. So it's like it would have been a first round, first pick in the seventh round. I remember Bill saying there's just too much value to let go by. And so we picked them. Brady didn't run fast. We've established that. But he wasn't going to have to cover Jerry Rice or Randy Moss. But if you've seen that famous picture of Brady at the Combine, then you know, as Kraft once said, that he was skinny as a beanpole. 
Would Michael Strahan or Jason Taylor break him in half? Pioli, the Patriots' director of personnel, interviewed Brady at the Combine and liked what he heard. I visited with him, you know, because we had a thing. We had, there's only so many interviews that you could get and do. So, um, but then we had other interviews. So I remember visiting with him. I just remember him being, um, my initial impressions was a guy who had a unique mix of chip on his shoulder, but I don't know how to articulate it, Gary, but it's a, it was a rare combination of calm confidence that never even got close to arrogance. You know what I mean? And, and he's, I still see him that way. He has a, a way about him mm-hmm. that, that, that's really hard to articulate. Did Pioli walk out of that meeting convinced the Patriots would be doomed if they passed on Brady? Of course not. He was not Peyton Manning, that's for sure. But as it turns out, he was better than him. But unless it's John Elway or Peyton Manning or Andrew Luck, then draft day can be a very difficult and emotional experience. All that's at stake is a player's immediate future. Tom Brady Sr. and his wife Galen provide a strong support system to help Tom get through what was two days of hell. Oh, it was. Yeah, it really was. And you know what? And I've seen it before, and I see it every year, that the kids that go through this draft, and you know, when we were little kids, Gary, and we'd be out on the street, and we'd be picking up sides, and you guys, and you were the last guy to take how lousy you felt, you know, no matter what it was, when we were playing ball and that kind of stuff. And it's exactly the same, but it's on a bigger level now. And these guys, you know, you see guys sitting in the draft room and, you know, Aaron Rodgers dropped to 24 and some guys dropped to the second round. And it's, every time somebody's name is called, you slit your wrist a little bit more. Yeah. And you're, when you're at the NFL, you know, on full display. Well, back when this one in 2000, it was, um, you know, we had higher expectations after having had a pretty darn good uh, college career to fall to 199. That was really painful, painful. Because all of a sudden, everything that you, what you accomplished was kind of discarded. So it's tough on every single kid on draft day. Mm-hmm. It's because we put so many hours, so many high school hours, and so many college hours into into preparing themselves and the people say, hey, you know, it's all for North or, you know, 199 or you're undrafted. It's very, very painful for the kids. We use, the kids become tools. That's exactly what happens to them. And that doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good when, when you've worked as hard as you could. And many kids are successful and it's not recognized. Still, Brady was by far the highest-rated player on the Patriots draft board when pick number 199 came up in the sixth round. By this point in the draft, teams are just trying to find one redeemable trait that can translate into a prospect being a serviceable player. Belichick kept wondering why Brady was still on the board. One of my sources said that one of his trusted friends in the Patriots draft room that day said Belichick was pushing for Louisiana Tech quarterback Tim Rattay, who was from the same school that produced Terry Bradshaw. Regardless, Brady was the choice. NFL Films did a documentary called The Brady Six, which was a deep dive into Brady's draft experience. Belichick explained the issue that he had with Brady. Here's what he said. 
The real troubling part was the Michigan situation, and really they were trying to replace him as their starting quarterback. You say, okay, they don't really want this guy as their starting quarterback. They want another guy. What's the problem here? That's a little bit of a red flag there. A quick recap of the Michigan years. Brady was seventh on the depth chart as a freshman and was redshirted. He threw five passes his second year and just 15 his third year after Michigan coach Lloyd Carr held a camp competition and picked Brian Greasy to start. Although Brady started all 25 games in his final two seasons and won 20 of them, Carr was continually finding ways to get local phenom Drew Henson onto the field. His presumed intention was to hope Henson beat out Brady and that kept him away from playing baseball full-time for the Yankees. Henson never beat out Brady, but Carr's tactics created concern in the NFL that he didn't believe in Tom Brady. So even though Brady played against great competition in the Big Ten and carved up a very good Alabama team in the Orange Bowl in his final game, there was about as much interest in him before the draft as there was when he was coming out of high school. Brady learned a hard lesson in the months leading up to the 2000 draft. Don't believe what NFL teams tell you. Don't ever believe it. Tom Brady Sr. is a caring and protective father. He was sure his son would go way before the sixth round. He told me a story about Mike Riley, who was the San Diego Chargers head coach in 2000. Riley recruited Brady to play at Southern Cal when he was the offensive coordinator. He wanted him, but was vetoed by the head coach, John Robinson. Riley was hired as the Oregon State head coach in 1997, and then Chargers general manager Bobby Bethard hired him in San Diego in 1999. Bethard traded up to get quarterback Ryan Leaf in 1998, one spot after the Colts took Peyton Manning. But after Riley's first year with Leaf, it was clear he was a bust and the Chargers moved on from him after the 2000 season. So Riley went into the 2000 draft intent on finding a new quarterback. After Robinson refused to allow him to bring Brady to USC, he kept an eye on him at Michigan. They met up again at the scouting combine. Here's what Brady Sr. told me. So saw Tommy at the combine and he said, I miss you on the first time, I won't miss you again. More of the GOAT, Tom Brady, coming up. Now let's jump ahead for a second to Brady's third career start in 2001. It came against Mike Riley and the Chargers. New England was seemingly out of the game before Brady helped the Patriots score 10 points in the final three minutes and 31 seconds, sending the game into overtime with a touchdown pass to Jermaine Wiggins with just 36 seconds left. Adam Vinatieri's 44-yard field goal won it for the Patriots in overtime. Tom told his father a story he heard from Hall of Fame linebacker Junior Seau, who was playing for the Chargers in 2001. Seau later came out of retirement to play with Brady in New England from 2006 to 2009. Seau told Brady that Riley was so upset after losing that game that he was shouting on the bus, I told you we wanted this kid, I told you. The Chargers finished 5-11 in 2001 putting Riley's three-year record at 14-34. and 34. He was fired after the season. He wanted Brady at USC in 1995, denied by John Robinson. He lobbied Bethard before and during the 2000 draft to take Brady, denied. 
Beathard had a scout fetch Brady's tape during the draft and reported back to Riley that Brady was not good enough. Beathard built Super Bowl champions in Washington. He built the Chargers team that made it to its only Super Bowl. He's in the Hall of Fame, but he made mistakes. In the 2001 draft, one year after Beathard retired, the Chargers took Drew Brees in the second round. Typical of the Chargers, Brees won a Super Bowl, but with the Saints. Of course, more teams than the Chargers should be second-guessing themselves for not picking Brady. An old-time scout for the New York Giants, Whitey Walsh, loved Brady, but Giants general manager Ernie Accorsi, a connoisseur of fine quarterbacks, admitted to me he doesn't even remember discussing Brady in the draft room. One of the New York Jets scouts, Jesse Kay, pleaded with general manager Bill Parcells, even though the Jets had used one of their record four first-round picks on Chad Pennington. Kay wanting Brady and Parcells rejecting him is a fact, even though to this day, Parcells does not recall the conversation. It's probably better that he forgets. You can go up and down the list of every team's quarterback situations in 2000 and make an excuse for why they didn't take Brady. They had their starter, they had their backup, they had other needs. You can even rationalize the Jets for taking Pennington over Brady in the first round. He was the consensus best quarterback in the draft. And it's fair to say the Jets would have been much more competitive with New England during the Brady years had Pennington not kept blowing out his throwing shoulder. In fact, the only time the Patriots didn't win the AFC East with Brady as their starter was in 2002. The Jets finished first with Chad Pennington, a quarterback. The last time the Patriots didn't win the AFC East was 2008, in the year that Brady tore his ACL in the first quarter of the first game of the season. The Dolphins won the division that year with Chad Pennington as their quarterback. But it's impossible to rationalize the other five teams who drafted quarterbacks and skipped over Tom Brady. The 49ers and the late, great Bill Walsh should be ashamed of themselves. Steve Young had just retired because of multiple concussions. They had Jeff Garcia, who had made a name for himself in the Canadian Football League, and journeyman Rick Meyer, who may have gone to Notre Dame but didn't play anything like Joe Montana. Steve Mariucci was the 49ers coach in 2000. Remember when I told you in episode two that Brady almost transferred to Cal in the middle of his second year at Michigan? Mariucci was the Cal coach back then, so there was a strong Brady connection. The Niners held a mini combine before the draft for college players who were from the Bay Area. Mariucci and Walsh both attended. So did Brady. Brady grew up a huge fan of the 49ers, and Joe Montana and Steve Young were his heroes. Tom was just four and a half years old when his parents took him to Candlestick Park on January 10th, 1982, for the catch game, when Montana and Dwight Clark pulled off the miracle play against the Dallas Cowboys to send the 49ers to their first Super Bowl. The Bradys were sitting behind the end zone where Clark made his catch, and little Tommy started to cry after the play, not because he was so happy, because the person in front of him stood up and blocked his view of Clark's catch. Tom Sr. was a 25-year 49ers season ticket holder. It would have been a dream for Tom and his family for him to follow Montana and Young and play for the 49ers. 
But Mariucci said nothing Brady did in that workout that day convinced the 49ers that they had to take him. Instead, they took Gio Carmazzi from Hostra in the third round and Tim Rattay from Louisiana Tech, the player that Belichick liked, they took him in the seventh round. The 49ers had to realize they blew it that summer when Brady looked like a veteran and Carmazzi looked like he had never played football when the 49ers played the Patriots in the Hall of Fame game in Canton, Ohio. Walsh hedged his bet by taking Rattay, but he had a forgettable career also. At least Rattay got on the field in the regular season, something Carmazzi never accomplished. If we're going to talk about draft blunders, I can't possibly leave out the Cleveland Browns. How about the Browns taking Spurgeon win in the same round as Brady? Spurgeon win! He began his college career at Minnesota and finished up at Southwest Texas State. And he was taken 16 spots ahead of Brady. Just like Whitey Walsh with the Giants and Jesse Kay with the Jets and Mike Riley with the Chargers, the Patriots had a Brady advocate in quarterbacks coach Dick Rabine, who had scouted him extensively. And Michigan coach Lloyd Carr said New England personnel executive Bobby Greer was the only representative of an NFL team to call him about Brady before the draft. Here's what Carr told me. We always had, we still have, what we call a pro day, where our players work out on campus and uh, all of the NFL teams are invited in. And uh, that comes in normally in uh, late March on a Friday. And at any rate, there were a lot of scouts in here, and I go in before the uh, the workout starts. I always went in and uh, talked about uh, the players and answered any questions. And my recollection is there were a lot of guys, uh, there were a lot of people there from the NFL that, uh, so, you know, there was, there was uh, interest in him and some of our other guys. Draft day arrived on April 15, 2000. In those days, it was a Saturday-Sunday affair with the first three rounds on Saturday and the last four on Sunday. Based on pre-draft intel, Tom Brady thought he can go as early as the third round to Riley and the Chargers. Here's what Tom said on the Brady Six documentary about the anxiety he was feeling that day. You see so-and-so get picked, and then there's nine more picks gone until one team that you think was interested. That's pretty anxious. Back to the telephone. Why wouldn't it ring? Silence. Crickets. Here's Tom Brady Sr. The first day we played golf in the afternoon. Day two arrived and more of the same. Meanwhile, in the Patriots draft room at the old Foxborough Stadium, the Patriots kept staring at Brady, sitting there alone as the best player left on their draft board. And they kept skipping him. They had two picks in the sixth round, numbers 187 and 199 overall. Brady time? Getting there. Be patient, Tom. At 187, the Patriots drafted Virginia safety Antoine Harris. He played five years in New England and won three Super Bowls. He made big plays in the AFC Championship game against the Steelers and in the Super Bowl against the Rams in New England's first championship season. So they didn't blow this pick, but they risked losing Brady to take him. The draft was deep into the second day and Tom Brady was all but climbing the walls. Once again, here's Tom Brady Sr. And then the second day, Sunday, we 
TV at about the beginning of the fifth round. He says, I, I got to uh, go upstairs. We went upstairs, we were watching it on the, we were laying on the bed, watching it, and then about the, uh, halfway through the sixth round, he just said, I got to get out of here. And he got up and, and uh, went downstairs and grabbed the bat and went for a walk. And came back about 20 minutes later or so, and as he came back, um, uh, the Patriots called. When the phone finally rang, Bill Belichick's assistant asked Brady to hang on for the coach. The wait was finally over. The Patriots did not need a quarterback when they drafted Brady. They had Drew Bledsoe, who after the 2000 season signed a $100 million contract. Plus they had veteran John Fries, a, a capable backup, and Michael Bishop, a developmental quarterback they drafted in the seventh round in 1999. Here's what Robert Kraft remembered about that draft. Coming off 5-11 season, just before the draft, we had made Drew Bledsoe the highest way we gave him a 10-year, $103 million deal. Our quarterback coach, Dick Rabine, died in training camp. And he's really the one who, you know, did the scouting, went up to Michigan. And I remember him speaking up in the draft room. As the draft day cliche goes, Brady had too much value for the Patriots to pass up at that point. They had considered him as early as the third round, but felt they had other needs. That kept happening each time their turn came up until they just couldn't pass him up any longer. Here's Scott Pioli. By the time it got to the sixth round, he's sitting over here on the left side of our board all alone, and the other entire column is gone, the next column. And I think there was one or two players left in the other column. I mean, he was so far and away. And then, you know, of course, the conversation comes up, okay, we either completely misevaluated this guy or there's something really wrong with this guy that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. And we said, okay, we've got to pull this name. And that's essentially what happened. It was now off to New England for Tom Brady, where he was convinced it was just a matter of time before he beat out Drew Bledsoe. After getting a good look at him, an important person agreed, Bill Belichick. On the next episode of The Goat, Tom Brady, September 23rd, 2001, the first Sunday of NFL games after the September 11th terrorist attacks. It was the most patriotic game I've ever attended. It was also the day Drew Bledsoe suffered a serious injury on a ferocious hit by Mo Lewis of the Jets, and Tom Brady would soon be on the path to being the greatest of all time. The Goat, Tom Brady, is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. This season is written and hosted by me, Gary Myers. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis for Diversion Podcasts and Sean Titone for iHeartRadio. Story editing by Scott Waxman with editorial direction from John Tuttle. Editing, mixing, and sound design by Mark Francis. Archival research by Brianne Murphy. Verna Fields is our technical producer, and our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Find Diversion on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Diversion Pods. And let us know, what do you think of the show? Send us your questions, your comments, and even your critiques. That's Diversion Pods on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, Visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Diversion Podcasts.